Hello and welcome to the ninth episode of the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange Showcase where I invite bloggers, filmmakers and fellow film junkies to help me work for the 1001 film introduction to cult and obscure cinema which is the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange list. I'd like to start tonight's episode by thanking everyone who voted in the recent Lambcast poll which helped make Southland Tales the movie of the month for January and which won the vote by a staggering 29%. Special thanks also has to go to director Richard Kelly for retweeting the campaign efforts. And you'll be able to listen to for yourself what exactly the Lambcast panel thought about my selection when episode 252 of the Lambcast is posted in the next couple of weeks. We're back to tonight's episode, where tonight we'll be looking at the Saucier Siska's Neil Grindhouse debut, Dead Hooker in a Trunk, as well as Brian De Palma's ultra flamboyant rock opera, Phantom of the Paradise. But more importantly, joining me in the studio this evening is Christine Makepeace, who not only is one half of the Feminine Critique podcast, but also recently published her first novel, The Modern Gothic Tale, Wake Up Maggie, which you can find available now through Amazon. Welcome to the show, Christine. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, it's uh, good to have you. I know that your partner in crime, is, uh, Emily, has been on a couple of times, so it's nice to have the other half of the show on, uh, on to come and share uh, your thoughts on a couple of films this evening. Well, I'm honored you'd have me, and I'm really excited about the movies that we're going to talk about. Yes, uh, this week, uh, Phantom of the Paradise, another first watch for myself, so thank you again for selecting that one. Woohoo! Thank you for <laughs> not being like, that's old hat, I don't want to talk about that again. <laughs> um, again, Phantom of the Paradise is one of those films which, it's always been on the watch pile, but I think I thought it was something else, I didn't... I certainly expected it to be a musical. I think it was, mm-hmm. I was expecting a horror, so uh, it was kind of surprising to find something Rocky Horror Pitch Show-esque. Uh, but obviously we'll talk about that more in a bit. Um, first of all, just to sort of uh, get to know a bit more about yourself, I just obviously, first of all, I have to ask the Feminine Podcast. I mean, how did that sort of come together? Um, well, Emily and I have been friends for a really long time now. We actually um, both met because we were listeners of another podcast, um, and we kind of were both sending in feedback and found out that we both lived in New York at the time, not there anymore. And it was kind of like, hey, why don't we meet up? And we met up and the first time I think we had dinner. We sat and talked for like five hours. It was it was something ridiculous. And we've been best buds ever since. And um, when I moved from New York to um, Austin, where I am now, she and I missed each other quite a bit. And it was kind of like, obviously, why don't we do a podcast? It'll give us a reason to talk. And we can be goofy and hang out. And it was kind of like an obvious thing that we had never thought of. Yeah. I mean, for anyone who's not listened to an episode of the Feminine uh, Critique podcast, I mean, how would you best sort of describe the show? Um, it is two very opinionated and goofy ladies um, talking about movies. We are really casual, really crass, but then we sometimes go on um, really random um, feminist tangents like some things hit us the strangest thing will will be like yeah that was awesome when that guy got his head cut off and that lady bled everywhere and then something will strike us the wrong way and we'll get really like and like christopher nolan he should never be allowed to you know when we finger wag but it's all in good fun i mean it's always interesting the thing i always enjoy i mean the fact it is obviously yourself and emily uh so it is just a female sort of perspective on sort of genre movies it's always so interesting to see that feminine perspective i mean obviously within the blogging sort of community especially within genre films there's a tendency to it it seem kind of like the boys club uh, do you find that there's any sort of resistance within the community or 
do you find yourself sort of accepted the same as any other sort of blogger? I would, that's, that's a tough question because yes, but I don't really know any different. So I don't know if there's a different way to be received. Um, that being said, the people that actually know me and that I'm interact with and I'm close with have always been nothing but supportive and um, respectful. But occasionally you'll see someone from the outside looking in that, that will immediately not take your opinion um, the way they would take someone else's or second guess you or be like, well, that's not true. I have to go fact check that. And, and it kind of strikes as like, well, I don't know why you don't believe me. Like, um, but I, I don't always want to boil things down to like different treatment because you know you're a lady or anything. Um, I think there are a lot of people like you know in the genre film community that that no matter man or woman, you have to have some amount of cred or like, well, if you haven't seen this Michael Mann film, I don't even want to talk to you. Like, and that doesn't matter if you're, if you're a man or a woman. So there are interesting people all over. Yeah. It does often when you get enough genre credit scary, it does very much become a game, a game of one upmanship. It's all like, well, you obviously have not seen this obscure film. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I think Emily and I get on so well. Um, We, neither one of us care will immediately be like, I, I've never seen that, and will chastise the other one. I can't believe you've never seen that. But it's never, like, I mean, we. I, every, I think everyone knows that there people have lives and things to do and time restraints, <laughs> so you can't, you can't see everything all the time. And um, I've kind of finally be- become comfortable with, like, the fact that I don't really like every genre. So I stopped trying to force feed myself certain things. Um, and for a long time, I, I would. I would just force myself to sit through certain things that I didn't really enjoy just so I could say I watched them. Yeah, I understand your feelings on that. I mean, know that recently I've just come to the conclusion that Goddard is never going to sit right with me. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain cine fans out there who will like insist that you have to watch all Goddard's movies and he's this super important director, but you can get through life without appreciating Goddard. Uh, Weekend especially I find to be the most boring sort of art house movie that you can probably watch it is just like cinematic root canal surgery to sit through that movie uh but there are people obviously who are out there who absolutely adore him and they like tell you all the wild and wonderful things that breathless has or a band apart also has and what he did for cinema but again there's just he's one of those directors i just didn't uh, personally get i mean is there any sort of directors that you don't get i know that i think you mentioned christopher nolan uh, yeah i'm not a huge chris nolan fan <laughs> Um, and he's he's one that, and I I hate I you know use the term loosely, but fanboys really um, get on you about not enjoying. Like they'll try to convince you why you're wrong. <laughs> and yeah. like I've I've seen all the movies. Like I feel like I haven't. And that's another thing. Like I try to go into things with an educated opinion. Like I would never just be like, well, I saw that third Batman movie. I didn't like it. He's terrible. Like, yeah. I think you got to be- collect some data first. Yeah. I think purely based on the Batman trilogy, I think that's why the fanboys get so rabid. They don't mm-hmm. seem to care as much like about the Prestige or Inception or Memento. It's like if they're defending it, it's always like, oh, Dark Knight was this. Mm-hmm. Oh, he did this with Batman, and or oh, wasn't he so visionary for you know giving it like a real world setting? You're thinking, well. There's others who've been doing it like a long time before, like Frank Miller was doing it a long time before. Alan Moore essentially did like the first real life comic book with Watchmen. He did what mm-hmm. Nolan did for Batman, but with Watchmen, obviously, probably to more extreme lengths. I mean, other than 
no i mean is there sort of the directors if you see their name on the credits you would just like avoid like the plague or um geez not really nothing that i can think of off the top of my head um you say that and i immediately start thinking of all the directors that i like look for and jump at like i don't there's nobody that i guess maybe they're not even they're so not on my radar that i don't even see it okay, um, I mean... anymore i mean i guess there's modern like directors yeah um, like Brett Ratner or something <laughs> that I would just be like, oh, I'm all set. I don't really want to see that. Yeah. But yeah, I try not to, I don't really watch, this is my new thing too. I don't watch trailers. So I go into films just based on, you know, director, cast, mm. you know, writer. And, and so I, I guess maybe that's why I focus more on who I like so I can seek out things that I'm probably going to like. I mean, I was just to flip it slightly then. I mean, what, directors do you sort of like look out for and get sort of excited when they've got something new or they something gets re-released by them uh well hitchcock's my absolute favorite um i a little on the cliche side but i i absolutely adore hitchcock um and then i love brian de palma um he will forever be someone that i will jump at the chance to talk about or to watch something from um, guys that are still really heavily working or people that are still have heavily working. Unfortunately, it's mostly guys um, <laughs> um, would probably be, geez, I love Mark Duplass a lot. Um, I get really excited for him. Um, <clears throat> there's um, some people working in horror and indie stuff like Joe Swanberg. I get really excited for, even though I don't always like his stuff. Um, Adam Wingard. I mean, the guest, is something I just saw, and he was somebody that I would have said I didn't like that much until I saw that movie. Um, and I love looking at, I'm an IMDb freak, I will look at people, I will just love to look at people's stuff and see what else they worked on, and if I see somebody has TV credits, TV that I was into, I'm immediately into it. Um, so, yeah. I, mean, I like quirky you, stuff, I think. It's funny you should mention The Guest, uh, because that's probably the one film which I've, the last two weeks, all I've seen is just people rave about the guest. Um, Isn't it nuts? I haven't seen it yet. But like, I, I, it came out of nowhere. I swear, I saw this movie, I, I think it like Best Buy. I yeah. just saw it sitting there and I was like, huh, that's a movie. Never gave it a second thought. And then all of a sudden my Facebook got flooded with it. And what is, what even is this? So then I look and I'm like, oh, it's an Adam Wingard movie. And I really liked your next, but his shorts that were in like VHS, <clears throat> VHS 2 and ABC's of Death, I just really wasn't into. So I was kind of like, eh, I'm not too excited about this. And people started talking about it like it was the second coming. I was like, I don't, I guess I'm going to watch it. And then I found out that Cousin Matthew from Downton Abbey was in it. And then I was like, okay, I'll watch this. <laughs> it's really, really that simple. I mean, so oh, I, I, I finally watched it and it was, it was everything everybody said it was. Yeah, I mean... Even though I haven't watched it, I've already preemptively put it onto um, the the second 1001 list, which just through the amount of recommendations we get from people who obviously listen to the podcast or people who come on the podcast. Mm -hmm. So obviously the fact that it's been mentioned so much, it has already been sort of put on that list. Um, and here's a film I'm eventually going to get around to because I did enjoy your next. Um, and again, he is really one of those sort of pioneers within the mumble gore genre. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've heard a lot of comparisons to Carpenter. I know when I saw the trailer, it brought back memories of The King, but I've, from what everyone's told me, it's a lot more sort of uh, action-packed and a lot better sort of pace than The King was. It, it, it is. It's 
it I really had my doubts. I really didn't think it would hit me the way it did. But, you know, they always say you can't plan to make a cult film or something like like a cult classic. Yeah. It just happens. And this is this really felt like that to me. Like this is gonna be a movie that resonates for a long time. Yeah, I think the Neil Grindhouse sort of genre has proven that you can't just manufacture a cult film. Oh, exactly. Uh, you can't just like take the the sort of Grindhouse style um and just like put it out there and expect everyone to just sort of like lap it up. There has to be some sort of uh passion and sort of some appreciation for the genre when you're obviously trying to style your film in that sort of style. Mm, and I think that's a, that's that the um it's more of an homage than a ripoff. Um I you know, I really liked Hobo with the shotgun, like a lot. And um it reminds me of that. It, they're not at all alike, but they, they they have that love, that genre cinema love in them. And um yeah, I really liked it. You need to see it. Yeah, Hobo with Shotgun's uh it's a bit of a rough ride. <laughs> I don't know why that movie affected me quite a bit. I love it. I think it's when you got scenes like the school bus and pleasant children being set on fire <laughs> that you think maybe we're taking things a little too far. <laughs> I have a terrible sense of humor. And then, and then, <laughs> if that's not bad enough, we end it with the theme tune from the raccoons because <laughs> that that just I, screams Grindhouse. I don't know. I just, uh, I'm, I'm a sucker for that movie. <laughs> I, I make no direct, apologies. Um, the director, I mean. He's a big fan of Versa and I, Deadly Night, and he's another of these guys who's like a big genre fan, and he's obviously working within the genre he he adores. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's another guy, whenever I see like an interview, just because he's so passionate about his projects, um, I like to obviously see him. But yeah, did <laughs> Hobo with Shotgun, he was, uh, I don't know, it, it's because it's, for me, the plague kind of like overpowered it. You have these two great villains. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't think I don't know if he expected them to kind of pop out the way they did because that there was like the plague fan art and <laughs> stuff. Yeah, they've That's... they've really like uh, taken off. They they're basically like the medieval version of Daft Punk. If you've not seen the film, that's the best way to describe them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, basically, they just steal the whole film and you think you've seen everything up until this point and then they turn up and just like blow it up to a completely different level oh i i love it so much i'm <laughs> and, and then i'll leave it at that <laughs> <laughs> um obviously at the moment you're not currently blogging you're doing obviously doing the podcasting you've got the book out mm-hmm. um i mean as a sort of former blogger i have to obviously ask do you feel this still is a place for old school bloggers or do you think it's now been rendered obsolete by the video bloggers um, I still think there's um, a place for it. Um, it's it's tough, though, because even when I was still doing it actively, there was this big shift towards um, shorter form, you know, and lists. Yeah. And people really like that. They want easily, quick, digestible things. But, I mean, you can just look at my, my Twitter feed or my Facebook feed, and there are tons of people posting and reblogging and retweeting just uh, like longer form criticism analytical articles and it's it's great i think there's still a place for it but i think it it just needs to be higher quality to to maintain because there is this glut of you know you'll never guess what these 10 actors did and yeah. like ugh, i don't want that but there, i mean i still read it i still read blogs i still i still read articles on the internet so yeah that's very diplomatic answer. I know everyone's been very diplomatic when I've uh, put this question out there. Uh, 
I, I struggled with it quite a bit when I was still actively doing it because I felt like nobody cared and nobody wanted to see it unless you were, you were ruffling feathers. Um, and I'm not a feather rustler. Like that's not what I want to do. I want to give my opinion and I'm going to give it in a fair and balanced way. If you don't like it, that's fine. But like, I never present things in a way to like as clickbait, like to get people to come and fight with you just to get people to come. Um, but I don't know. I'm more apt to read something than to watch a video blog or something or even listen to a podcast at this point. It's hard for me to keep up with podcasts. Yeah. It's, it's nice to see podcasts on back on the rise and not just purely because obviously I'm here <laughs> may releasing this podcast, uh, but just the whole podcast culture is nice to see it sort of back on the, on the rise, even though there are some people who have like neglected it and said that it's like a, a dead format. No, I don't think so at all. And not to get super mainstream with it, but I mean, look at Serial over the past couple months and how that exploded. And people that had never even heard of what a podcast was, was listening to it. Um, I think podcasts are a really important medium that is going to continue to stick around. I mean, it's independent radio. Yeah. Um, obviously, we discussed a little bit about your sort of film taste already. Just to go into that a bit more. I mean, what would you consider to be your scariest movie? Ooh, scariest movie. Um, you can name a few if you want. Poltergeist is probably, I mean, Poltergeist. <laughs> um, the scariest, um, the scariest thing I've seen recently was probably um, Oculus. Um, that was terrifying. Um, I can't watch body horror. Uh, that's the only thing that disturbs me on a level that I just can't handle. Yeah. <laughs> so you're not a Cronenberg fan then? I am a huge Cronenberg fan, but it's like. A, a feat of strength to watch something to, and I'll, I'll usually only watch it once because I'll be so disturbed by it it's such an ironic statement that, that you can't stand body horror yet you're essentially watching the the maestro of body horror but he's so good in the fact that I can get so grossed out and disturbed mm. and unsettled I mean that's kind of why I watch horror because I want to f have that those feelings but man oh man there's like Things melting and fingernails bending off. I can't. Just thinking about it makes me queasy. Yeah, I know. I get, I get far too upset at the end of the fly. <gasps> I know. I've seen the fly so many times, and every time I watch it, I say, "I'm never watching it again." <laughs> it's just so <laughs> sad. It's it's bleak and upsetting and gross and just oh, it makes my guts hurt. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you've obviously, uh, his son Brandon's now obviously recently entered into the uh, foray, uh, mm -hmm. from the likes of uh, Jennifer Lynch, who's uh, father's David Lynch, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, his film, again, falling very close in his father's footsteps uh, with Antiviral. I don't know if you caught that one at all. I have not watched it because I've been told that it'll probably gross me out. <laughs> <laughs> I get really like I get really squeamish. I have to I have to pump myself up to watch these things. Yeah. And is this something that you've seen? I've seen it. Um, it's unique enough to stand on its own merits. It doesn't feel like uh, when Box and Helen was released and it felt like, oh, here's someone just clearly trying to copy their, their sort of famous parents' sort of star mm -hmm. and sort of cash in. It's Even though he's obviously using the Cronenberg name, it does feel that he's trying to do his own thing. Um, yes, there is the body horror element there, but it's been approached in a, a different way than Cronenberg would. It's not as sort of gooey. Uh, yeah. But there is clearly that still obsession that runs deeper in the Cronenberg family with uh, body horror. 
I, I, it's on my list of things. I really should watch it. <laughs> I'm um, nervous. <laughs> also, the, uh, the next question I have to ask, and I think you've answered it already, and it's, uh, what was the last film that sort of blew your mind? Oh, The Guest. The Guest blew my mind. Um, I can't think of anything before that. I fell into a real rut of like, well, I want to watch a movie, so I'll just watch something that I'm basically, I know I'm going to hate, or something that I've already seen, so... I have to break out of that. Despite watching things. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I I also the Maze Runner was really good, so there you go. That surprised me. I don't know. I don't know if you're familiar with that that YA film that came out over the summer. <laughs> yeah, I, I I saw the trailer. I didn't didn't watch the film. Um, I feel that at the moment the Hunger Games is sort of filling my young adult sort of quota. <laughs> um, and again, they feel like. I'm just sort of punishing myself. I mean, I read all the books because when they were being released, I was still working Borders and they sent it through and they were marketing it as, you know, Battle Royale, but for kids, mm-hmm. um, which is always an interesting marketing strategy. But there's so many aspects of it I don't like. The fact that the second book just felt like a rehash of the first book. Um, the fact that you've got the author claiming that she's never seen or heard of Battle Royale, like mm-hmm. the most popular Japanese movie of the last, what, 10 years, that even people who don't like subtitle movies have seen Battle Royale. Yeah, it's pretty infamous. Um, I mean, it's not true. It's obviously not a, a unique sort of plot. It's just really just a twist on the most dangerous game. But mm-hmm. I think there's always going to be that comparison when you try to do that sort of bar- Battle Royale uh, style plot that there are going to be those comparisons uh, drawn. You can only really sort of best embrace them. I mean, what's your thoughts on the Hunger Games, really? Oh, I, I actually really enjoy them. Um, I've read all the books. I've seen the movies up until now. Well, you know, the next one has to come out. I really like them. They're by no means perfect. Um, there is a lot of... Um, a lot of it is very derivative, but I think that they manage to stay interesting, and Suzanne Collins manages to do enough unique stuff with the characters that even if the plot tends to get a little rehashy. You you have characters that you're kind of um, in line with. At least that's what I felt. I really by the third book I was in tears the entire time. Just I love the character so much. Cool. I mean, obviously the third book they've decided to split for whatever reason into parts one and two. Yes. It is an it's a idea that makes about as much sense as splitting the Hobbit into three films, but. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the box office returns there continue to justify these things. I am less judgmental of them splitting that into two than I was of them splitting the last Harry Potter into two. Because a lot of the final Harry Potter, the first half of it felt like them walking around. Yeah, um, Harry Potter... Could have tightened that up. (laughs) Harry Potter's not something that ever really sits for me. It's like Step Up. Oh, Step Up, which I love. I know Step Up gets so much coverage. Step Up and Fast and Furious get so much coverage on your podcast. <laughs> um, I don't know where Fast and Furious comes from. I'm not a fan. I mean, if you listen to it, we've been covering them them like up until this one that needs to come out, I guess. Um, I haven't liked practically any of them. I don't like them. I think they're forgettable and boring. Mm. The Step Up movies... Those are the best things ever made. They're amazing. No, Step Up is it's not amazing. It's it's people <laughs> trying to justify that. Oh, you clearly don't get get the importance of dance because you're not a dancer. I think I think I'm trying to remember which one it is now because they kind of blur one into. I think it's Step Up Four. 
um, <laughs> where he's there editing the film, and she comes up and she's like, oh, I see what you are now. You're a filmmaker. And I'm thinking, wow, what gave that away? <laughs> they just make these, like, benign observations and people trying to act tough, but, like, trying to be tough dancing. Oh, tough dancing is maybe one of my favorite things. I don't know. I, lo- I love them. This, this last one that came up, um, Step Up 5, All In, that one was really good. <laughs> I... I don't believe in guilty pleasures because I'm not guilty about anything, but I love those step-up movies. No, I think if we're going to watch a dancing movie, we'll watch Magic Mike. I hate Magic Mike. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to talk about these movies with you. Oh, Channing Tatum. Boy, can that boy dance. I love Channing Tatum. I'm super pro Channing Tatum. I, I yeah. am one of the first pro Channing Tatum people. But um, I just, that movie, I mean, I felt like Soderbergh just hung him out to dry. He's he's flailing that whole movie, that poor thing. Yeah, Matthew McConaughey seemed to be just having a little too much fun. There are parts in that movie that I kind of go, ooh. Like, they make me a little uncomfortable. And not for, like, sexy reasons, just like... <laughs> <laughs> it's like I felt like somebody need to, needed to reel them in. Yeah, I think there's only so much in McConaughey and Leather Pants that, that you really need to see. <laughs> I can agree with that. And you don't, you especially don't need to see Kevin Nash, like, trying to be a stripper. Oh, he was, he looked so awkward and uncomfortable the whole time. Yeah. And then that dude that's in True Blood, whose name I can't think of, he looked uncomfortable. It just, that movie made me uncomfortable. And you would think it would be in my wheelhouse. It's not, though. Okay. <laughs> I don't think Magic Mike's on this list, but we'll <laughs> maybe you can add it to, to the other it list. At some point, it, it'd be on my the second list, which is essentially my second Death Star. But um, obviously, onto the first of tonight's films, Dead Hooker in a Trunk. Uh, the film itself was the debut film by the Soskia sisters, released back in 2009. Uh, it follows four friends. We've got the badass, played by Sylvia Soskia, her sister, the geek. Um, also played by Jen Soskia, um, as well as their friends the Junkie and the Goody Two-Shoes, uh, who find the world thrown into chaos when they discover the body of a dead hooker in their trunk, and soon their plans to dispose of the body suffer further complications when they find themselves being targeted by chainsaw-wielding triads, a cowboy pimp, and a brutal serial killer, as it seems that is the troubles for the group are only just beginning. Uh, the film itself was... In many ways, um, kind of like the Soska sisters fuck you to their less than brilliant film school, uh, who cut the funding on their final film, and they instead decided to make this film aim sort of the retaliation, as well as making a film which really is an embodiment of their love for genre cinema. Uh, shot on a shooting budget of $2,500, uh, with most of the effects being used for, used for special effects. It's... A very sort of grimy sort of film, uh, but there is certainly those flashes of brilliance which we would see certainly with the girls' later films such as America Mary, more recently See No Evil 2. Uh, Christine, what did you think of the first film this evening? Um, well, I had never seen this before. Okay. Um, I picked it for that reason. Um, this is the first time I've actually ever heard their last name said aloud. Soska Sisters? Uh, Soska you... Sisters. I think oh. that's how it's pronounced. Soska. Um, I've never said it out loud, so I don't know. But I mean, they're pretty—they're pretty noteworthy. I mean, because they are—I mean, not just because they are female filmmakers, but I mean, they're female genre filmmakers. They're twin sisters. Like, there's many reasons why they—they they come up 
and I hadn't seen I, I haven't seen American Mary either. I haven't seen any of their films, and I feel like that was a big blind spot for me. Um, I didn't know what to expect from this movie. Um, it's obviously pretty low budge. I didn't know how low budget it was until it started. Um, I am not a huge fan of really low budget movies. I know that sounds really shitty, but I have a hard time distancing myself from from that and yeah. looking at it as its own film because I'm constantly reminded that I'm watching a low budget movie. Um, so that being said, I liked this movie about as much as I would any other movie of this budget. Okay. <laughs> that's fine. I mean, is that super diplomatic? That's uh, fine. I mean, I said uh, I. It is unquestionably a low-budget film. You can see that from the style. Um, there does at times feel like the film is sort of overreaching past its budget, mm-hmm. uh, but there's certainly that sense of sort of passion that's behind it. I mean, the fact is that the girls, they were sort of fresh out of film school at this point, so they're not completely untrained. It's not like they just put their sort of like film school money into sort of the budget film like we see with so many uh, DTV zombie movies especially and sort of very yeah. bad sort of horror that seems to be flooding the market where you have these directors who think that they don't need to go to film school, that they've watched enough films to sort of make it, just go out with their friends and just make a film and it to turn around and be like a success, which is, again, such a rare situation. I mean, yes, Tarantino did it, uh, but again, he was sort of educating himself with his sort of student film, uh, My Best Friend's Birthday. Kevin Smith, again, uh, legendary, funded his through credit cards, um, but again, he did have some film school sort of training. Um, I mean, would you say that, that it does help to have that sort of film school training when you're obviously doing films of uh, low budget? Um, I guess so. And But to say that I, I, it was clear that there was someone who went to film school manning this film, I, I didn't think that. I never was like, oh, clearly this is a trained professional. This is someone who knows what they're doing, or this is someone who, who's cut their teeth. You know, I, I never thought that. It looked like someone's first attempt, and that's, that's fine. But aside from that, I just didn't connect with the subject matter at all. And, and that's really once I saw how, I, once I saw, you know, how low budget it was, and I knew it was their first film, I'm not going to, I'm not going to judge it solely on the way it looks or the way, you know, any of their effects look because I don't, I mean, that's not fair. That's not what you're evaluating anymore. I just, I just, I just couldn't get into the story. I thought a little bit of the territory was too rote for me to be interested in. Um, I think 15 year old me would have loved this. Yeah. Um, But at that point, like, like the kind of like the whore and the Madonna kind of twin sister thing, like it wasn't, fun and goofy and creative enough to be interesting it just kind of was like oh they're doing this yeah i mean obviously just looking at our main group here um as you said we've got the two sisters again played by the uh Soskia sisters themselves uh jen and sylvia um sylvia playing the badass and uh jen playing playing the geek in this case um i mean within this sort of group did you like any of these characters or did you just find them sort of that they just basically lived up to their, their namesake really um i don't know if i if i liked any of the characters they there wasn't any there wasn't any real depth to them um and i, I and i don't mean that to sound like um pompous or anything but they just there wasn't anything to them there were no arcs there was nothing really going on but i did like um 
goody two shoes, the dude that the, like the super religious dude. I thought he was funny. I got a couple laughs from him, but um, other than that, it was just kind of like, all right, <laughs> I get what you're doing. Can we be done now? I mean, it's interesting you should say to him because I, I personally didn't like the goody two shoes. That's funny. Yeah, I, I don't know why. Whatever, just... whatever shtick he was doing worked for me, and I, I laughed a couple times. I think it's because I've worked with like too many devout Christians. And it's like, so it oh, wasn't great, funny. They're haunting my like, they're haunting my <laughs> viewing as well. Um, I that being said, the construct of the story itself, while I found it to be a little old, um, there were a few points in the narrative where I didn't understand why something was happening. I didn't know how we got from point A to point B, but that didn't happen as much as I expected. So I think the actual construct of the plot is is solid, which makes me want to see what else they do if yeah. like i can say i didn't like this but the reasons i didn't like it would never keep me from seeking out like american mary mm. like now i actually want to see it more okay. i mean american mary which we uh discussed in a previous podcast is a completely different beast i mean for a start the girls have a proper budget behind them mm-hmm. um it's a lot more polished than dead hooker in a trunk um which is why it's so i wish that i'd like this film more because i'm i'm such a big fan of their work um, and obviously what they've gone on to do, American Mary is, again, one of my favourite uh, films of theirs. Um, again, uh, we see No Evil 2. I felt they took what was already a pretty good concept um, and sort of like took it up that no- next sort of notch by having that sort of experience within the genre. Um, and they sort of reworked it in their own sort of vision while um, obviously managing to sort of still bring their own to the story, even though they're sort of working with someone else's idea. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, obviously, you, with the character of uh, Goody, Goody Two Shoes, I mean, the character was originally supposed to be played by a woman. Oh, uh, that's super interesting, really. Yeah, she dropped out uh, two days ago. I would have loved that. I mean, that would have given, I mean, that would obviously made it an old girl sort of group, a nice throwback to like the girl gang movies of the 70s. That could like, have been really sisters. fun. Yeah. I mean, would that have given it a sort of different sort of uh, tone, do you think? Maybe I mean I like that 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 was their initial like thought like so let's do it let's do it all broads and let's you know that's really cool yeah um that could have been interesting and you know what that might have even made these little archetypes that they were trying to create with each character work better yeah I mean because you had four girls for yeah. you know four women with distinct and different in like kind of cliche personalities oh that's a horse of a different color. Um, I mean, C.J. Wallace, who obviously plays Goody Two Shoes. I mean, like the sisters themselves, he was really multitasking on this one because he handled his, his name slides. shows up a million times in the end credits. <laughs> I think because he handled, he like shot it, he edited it, he did like all these uh, sort of like he managed like most of the technical aspects mm-hmm. um, of the film. Where the sisters themselves, they're not only like the writers, producers, but they star in it. They do all their own stunt work. Um, and when you look at, obviously, where Sylvia's doing as a badass, I mean, there's one scene where she's dragged by a horse. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does kick a lot of ass in this movie. Um, but I understand what you obviously said. I think as if it was an all-girl group, as it originally had been planned, I think it would have been a nice sort of throwback. It would have been a nice throwback to those sort of, like, uh, sort of all-girl sort of movies. And maybe, like, to an extent, maybe, like, the Pinku movies, things like Stray Cat Rock. Mm-hmm. Um that sort of, those sorts of movies. I mean, it would have been interesting to see 
if it had uh, been any different and maybe wouldn't have that sort of clumsy romance uh, article between the geek and Goody Two-Shoes, which for myself, it's sort of like, it's like, oh, it's the end of the movie, we just got to wrap this up by having these two characters like get together when, I don't know if it's the performance or just how the characters are written, but they just never seem to have any sort of chemistry between the two. Yeah, I can agree with that. Um, and you've obviously mentioned about the plot, and it is, for myself, it felt very thin, um, it felt like there was a lot of these sort of like set pieces and that they were sort of like all very strong together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt confused as to how we ended up at certain places when we did. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I've watched things that were absolutely like garbled messes. I mean, this at least had, had a structure that I could follow and that, I mean, that's for such a low budget. I mean, that again says that these are people, competent people doing it just maybe didn't have what they needed or the time or like if people are dropping out last minute they, I don't I don't think it was the best situation <laughs> I mean I think one of my favorite uh, bits is at the beginning when they first discover the the dead hook in the trunk and it's all like how's that got there and then you've got the badass and the junkie is sort of like look at each other and it's like I don't know we were partying pretty hard last night I'm thinking mm-hmm. How hard do you have to be playing to, like, not remember that you killed someone and then stuffed them in the trunk of your car? Like, if it had leaned into that goofiness a little bit, I think I would have been more charmed. You would have preferred to have, like, more sort of humor than trying to play it so straight-faced. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, because I guess that's when it, it actually worked for me. It was when it was being absurd and goofy. Like, when the hooker sits up and and then they promptly gets hit with a shovel. Like, that That worked. I was like, all right, that's really funny. Um, I mean, from one of the areas where the love uh, for this film really sort of stands out um, is during any scene where there's any sort of ounce of gore. I mean, we've mentioned, obviously, about the Chainsaw World in Triads, um, who disembowel one character. They try to cut off the junkie's arm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean... Do you feel that the gore is... I mean, it is very over the top. Like, no one can get shot without these, like, huge splatters of blood everywhere. Um, do you think that they were, like, intentionally trying to overplay the gore and try and make it sort of more comical? Or do you think they, these girls just really like gore? I don't know. That's, I think, a really good question. I think at this point... I mean, this isn't... This was, what, 96? Is that what I saw? No, 2009. Where did I get 96 from? <laughs> I just went through a wormhole. But I think at this point in time, if you're going to do comical gore, it has to be even more over the top than that. Because that still passes for, I mean, just regular straight-faced gore. So if you're going, like, schlocky and extreme with it, it, you need to dump a whole bucket on somebody. Um, But, I mean, if if they were doing it for humor, I, I wish I would have known that. Because then, I mean... They, again, lean into that humor because I think that's where it was strongest. Because this is an absurd premise. I mean, it's called Dead Hooker in a Trunk. Yeah. So I want some, you know, absurd crap. I mean, the title itself is inspired by um, by a hobo with a shotgun. Because uh, they wanted a badass title as well, so Dead Hooker in a Trunk. And, it's and a- I think they're promising me a lot with that title, and I want them to, to deliver. You want, I mean, what you want something a little more sort of uh, more grindhousey, more sort of grimy than you got, or? I guess so, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's dead hooker in a trunk, and I want 
crazy situations and extreme reactions and <laughs> lots of blood. And if somebody, I know they didn't have the budget, so I can't, <laughs> I can't fault them for all these things. I, I mean, I, I don't know how more extreme you can get it. I mean, we've got, <laughs> we've got the junkie has her arm not only like cut with a chainsaw, but then ripped off by a truck. Uh, before being sewn on, because, you know, that's going to work. Um, and then we've got the geek who gets her eyeball knocked out by a blow to the back of the head by a pipe and goes around with a gaffer tape patch. I liked the eye gag. I did not like the arm gag because I didn't understand it. Because the, 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 the truck was weird. How did it hit her? And then it's, uh, I, got, I got stuck in um, the logistics behind it, and I yeah. couldn't really enjoy it. I just love the uh, goody two-shoes, though. It's like his uh, crush has just lost an eye. It's like his only comforting thing to say is like, you look like an anime character. That was, see, again, it got a laugh from me. I, I enjoyed that. <laughs> um, but it, it's, again, it's that sort of feeling that one minute he's like being completely grossed out by just a dead hook in a trunk. Someone getting their arm ripped off or using like a, making a makeshift patch to cover the like no vacant orbital socket doesn't seem to affect him at all. I, I don't know if I wanted like some more, um, the words, some more sort of flow. So it's like it, it does seem to go from one extreme to the other. These characters just adapt to the situations they're in. Like it felt like a little too quickly for me. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm um, and the other main grab I have is with the actual serial killer himself, who is responsible for uh, these dead hookers. I mean, his actual motive for it. I mean, did it was it actually clear to you? Because I had to actually no. look it up afterwards. If you asked me to tell you what his motive was, I would tell you that I couldn't, and I would apologize. <laughs> um, yeah, um, basically it all boils down to him having a um, deformed penis. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Um, which had to, I'm guessing uh, here, because again, Wikipedia didn't seem to really know, uh, due to a circumcision uh, going rather wrong. Um, yeah, okay, it's all coming back to me now. And uh, the fact that Hook has found it um, amusing sends him into like, this violent sort of rage. I mean, the fact that they kill his brother, um, which is just even more stupid because he's just like, it's like, oh, it just my brother happened to borrow my baseball bat. So that they, was, yeah, so they were going to kill anybody with a baseball bat at that point. It seems that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's, I th in some way, I... I feel frustrated by this film, um, and on the other hand, because the sisters are they're so good to the sort of genre uh, and the films which others follow, I don't really want to hate on it more because obviously you understand that it is made on a budget. Uh, it is yeah. their first film, so that are it is obviously going to be that learning curve. And it's nice that in a way they got all their mistakes out on this film because when you look at um, American Mary, it's, it's like a completely different beast. It's a lot more polished. Um, and again, it, I don't know if this is because they got sort of professional actors. It's not just people obviously being brought in and having to be actors just to save on budget. But mm -hmm. I would, uh, I'd be interested to see what you make of American Mary, obviously having seen this one first. No, I definitely, I'm definitely interested. I mean, I, I love Catherine Isabel, so that, that alone had it on my radar, but I want to see what they, what they do. I mean, I'm genuinely curious. Um, Another sort of interesting sort of cameo appearance here, um, and this ties in nicely because the only real guide the girls had when they were making the film was a copy of Robert Rodriguez's um, 
autobiography slash filmmaking guide Rebel Without Film Crew. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually cast his lead actor from El Mariacho, Carlos uh, Galliardo, who makes an interesting cameo as God. Oh, at least that's what he's listed as. And here, he, I thought he was just a taxi driver who just had some words of wisdom. But Oh, yeah. I didn't realize because of that. Yeah, I didn't know you, who that was. When, when you look at the... God, you'd expect more like flowing robes and... Yeah. And oh, that's interesting. I mean, is there anything else that you sort of want to bring up in this one? Jeez, I don't, I don't think so. I think I pretty much covered it. I mean, I, I didn't enjoy it, but... I mean, in the sense that I would never watch it again, not in the sense that I have written these people off as filmmakers. It's actually the opposite. Like, I, I want to see, like, like, like we were discussing earlier about having a clear love for the genre. Like, I want to see what these, these people who have a clear love for the genre um, do next. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, if you did enjoy uh, Dead Hook or a Trunk or you sort of felt inspired to go and watch something else similar, I mean, what would your recommendations be? Jeez, I... <laughs> this could it's be a hard my answer to, to obviously, like, like yeah, it to. This could be my answer to anything um, I think you'll learn. Um, go watch Ho with a Shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know. Man, how I wish it would... I'm just, I'm just wishing it was all four girls and it could have been, like, like a 90s, you know, teen girl comedy, black comedy, like Jawbreaker or something, but with actual gore and violence where they kill people. That would have been amazing. I tell people to go watch Jawbreaker. Fair enough. Um, obviously, Hobo a Shotgun is a really good shout. Uh, the two, I would say, are very much on the same street as each other. Um, for myself, again, I just can't help but sort of refer it back to the sort of girl movies. So I'd say things like Switchblade Sisters, obviously things like the Stray Cat Rock series in particular, the first film of the series, Toulon Girl Boss, I would say would be another good sort of follow up watch to it. And maybe on a more sort of random tangent and just again keeping in with that old girl gang, I would also throw in uh, Jim Ranoski's The Lost Empire. Oh, that is a good one. That's more. <laughs> It, it, it again is random as hell, um, and probably is more uh, a nudie cutie sort of mm-hmm. style movie, because uh, Ranowski's uh, one big trait is that he likes ample-breasted, amply-breasted women, much like um, Russ Meyer. I've never put that together. <laughs> <laughs> if you go on, um, if you go on his Facebook page, uh, you you get you get to learn what his likes are pretty quick. That's funny. I've never done that. I don't. I don't know if I will. <laughs> um, we're going to take a quick break uh, now, and when we return, we'll be looking at the second film of this evening, uh, the Phantom of the Paradise. Hello, everybody. On behalf of Nick, Joe, and Vern, we would like to invite you back for a brand new season of the As You Watch podcast. In our upcoming season, we will be talking about franchises, trilogies, and series of movies that you will recognize, and some that you may not. We will also continue to post fun and insightful interviews with many people in the world of entertainment, as well as feature a lot of great guests from other sites and podcasts. So be sure to check us out on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Podomatic, and on Facebook. And don't forget to check out our older episodes on our site, asyouwatch.wordpress.com.
and we're back. Um, still tonight, I'm joined by my co-host for the evening, Christine. Hi. Um, and in the first half, we obviously discussed uh, Dead Hook in a Trunk, but now for our second film of the evening, um, one of Brian De Palma's earlier films before he made the big time with Carrie, uh, released in 1974. It's the flamboyant rock opera Phantom of the Paradise, uh, first time watch myself. The plot is uh, simple and follows very closely to Phantom of the Opera, with obviously nods to Faust as well, uh, in which William. Winslow Leach, a mild-mannered composer-singer whose music is stolen by the record producer Swan, um, which he plans to use to open his new concert hall, The Paradise. However, while attempting to destroy the record, he's left horribly disfigured, leading him to turn himself into the Phantom, while also nurturing an obsession with the singer Phoenix, who is the only one who will allow to perform his songs. Um... In many ways, uh, a fun companion piece to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. As I said, this was the first time watching myself, and certainly going into it, I was not expecting to uh, be confronted with a rock opera. Uh, I think I was expecting more of a sort of traditional horror, and certainly De Palma would be sort of the last person I would expect to be doing this sort of film. Um, Christine, what do you think of this one? This is one of my favorite movies of all time, um, hands down. No contest. Um, I think it is infinitely rewatchable. It is so much fun. It is over the top and really relevant and on point. Like, it's amazing how relevant some of the themes are. Um, and the, sc- the Paul Williams score is out of control. Like, I grew up with the Muppet movie. I, I know a Paul Williams score. Um, so this is like an adult... Well, Muppet movie is an adult Muppet movie, but this is like an adult Muppet movie score. Um, I listen to this soundtrack like regularly. Um, I think it's amazing. I have only wonderful gushy things to say about this, so perhaps you you could say something of more substance. Okay, I mean it's it's interesting, obviously, the fact you said this because when the film came out, it was a commercial failure. Yep. It completely flopped. I think the only place it played well was kind of in well, more precisely, Winnipeg, Manitoba. They know what's up up there. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what is something about this uh, film really resonated with those Canadians. I think it's like uh, Germany and their love affair with David Hasselhoff. Uh, I'm glad they enjoyed it. At least somebody did. <laughs> I mean, it seemed, there is actually a festival that um, has been sparked of people's love for this film. Um, it's also responsible for Daft Punk getting together. I didn't know that. Yeah, they uh, met at a screening of. Uh, of this film and they saw it as uh, IMDb tells me additional 20 times and that inspired them to obviously go off and make groovy French electronica music I guess well that's fantastic yeah the French really like this film for a long time you could only get the French blu-ray for it okay and they've uh, obviously released something now thankfully it was forever but you could really only find it in um, a lot of the a lot of the promotion, uh, like the newer material for it, like there was a doll and there was a helmet replica, and that was Japanese, I think. So I don't know. Uh, people other than Americans really liked it. Yeah, it's it's certainly got its fans. Um, I know Guillermo del Toro is a big fan of this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, even referenced it in his Simpsons opening credit when he had all the phantoms and he had uh, the Phantom of the Paradise uh, there on the keyboards. That's great. Yeah, Edgar Wright um, talked about it a lot while he was promoting Scott Pilgrim. And it's it's funny that that France again would 
be the sort of country that would sort of spearhead this. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that and MacGyver. <laughs> it's, it's just always amusing to see what sort of things like suddenly get this like cult-like following. Like you look at North Korea, who really liked the band The Pipettes for no apparent reason. Um, but obviously, back to the film. Uh, we went off on that random tangent of countries <laughs> and their random obsessions. Um, the film, as we mentioned, obviously it reworks Phantom of the Opera. Uh, mm-hmm. There is elements of Faust on there. You also get little nods to like Frankenstein, Picture Dorian Gray, and yep. Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of uh, Amontillado. I mean, Faust and Phantom of the Opera are the two sort of main influences there. I mean, do you find think that there are sort of like a good combination the the two sort of things? Obviously, one's concerns deals with the devil, and the other is sort of like or man's sort of obsession with uh, with his music? Um, I think they're pretty equally balanced. I think, I usually think of Faust before I think of um, Phantom of the Opera, like when thinking of the themes in this. Um, I think that's because that's the aspects of it that resonate most with me. Um, and then actually for the next one would be Dorian Gray. Um, I think that this is the most interesting take modern take on the portrait of Dorian Gray um, that I've ever seen. Um, I mean, it's not a huge, I mean, it is a huge part of the film, but it's not, I mean, it only comes up towards the end. It's, but it's important to the plot. So, I mean, it's really interesting. And it's, I think this movie across the board is ahead of its time. And I think reappropriating that and using, you know, film instead of a, a painted portrait is just really smart and clever and poignant. I mean, it's funny you should obviously like, reference uh, Picture Dorian Gray as being a major point. Myself, it just felt like like a little small sort of snippet and just like an, a little bit of added colour because obviously, as you said, instead of the picture, it is a film reel in this case. And it is plays into the part of Swan's sort of supernatural sort of being and the fact that he can't be killed without obviously... Um, affecting Winslow in return because of the deal that they've made. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just want to obviously talk about the character of Swan. Uh, he's this Phil Spector-esque like producer. Mm-hmm. I think he's in a way, I think he, I think he even has, I'm trying to remember back to obviously the Phil Spector court photos, not the Afro, but that horrible sort of like blonde flat wig. Yeah. At one point. And Swan seems to have the same hair. It is definitely... <laughs> <laughs> yep, his Swan's hair is not good in this movie. Yeah, he's um, and I'm trying to think of the um, I'm trying to think of the actor now who I would because I was like in my mind just like trying to recast it and obviously trying to think of who I would have uh play the play the role of Swan. Isn't that funny? We used to do we did that on Paracinema back in the day, and it was one of our most viewed posts for a very long time. Um. <laughs> Who would you cast? The, the, the I'm trying to think the actor's name now. But he plays uh, uh, Pepper in Modern Family. Nathan Lane, I believe it is. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, I mean, I, this wasn't my choice, but when it was originally done, it was um, Justin Timberlake was the idea. Oh, really? It's Swan. Yep. I I yep. could see that working. Yep. Um, my second choice would be uh, the guy who played the lead role in uh, Bavarian. Uh, sound. Oh yes. What's um, that guy's name? He also played uh, Capote. Oh, Toby Jones. Toby Jones. Uh, yeah. Why couldn't I think of his name? Toby Jones. Um, 
I think would be my my sort of more first class over Nathan Lane. Uh, Nathan Lane, I think, is perhaps a little too camp for the role, but I think at the same time, I still totally want to see him play Swan. I think um, Swan could have been a lot campier than he was, um, but I'm kind of glad it was played the way. I mean, again, it would be interesting just to see Nathan Lane obviously engaging in, in orgies with um, aspiring starlets and that. I think it would be a, a fun play on things for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the character Swan, while he's very calm on the surface, he is unquestionably an absolute bastard in this film. Um, I mean, you only have to look at, obviously, what happens to Winslow on his sort of journey to becoming the Phantom. Um, and I was sort of like listing it down as it was sort of happening here. So he's sort of beaten up. He's framed, sent to mm-hmm. prison, which is funded by Swan, no less, where he has all his teeth removed and replaced with shiny metallic ones. And then he gets his head caught in an industrial press before being shot and drowned. And I mean, I thought Darkman went for a lot. Yeah, it, it, it really, it has many levels. Like, it's really upsetting. And then it gets so ridiculous what, what's happening that you're like, oh, man, this is this is ridiculous, and then it gets upsetting again. Like, it's a real roller coaster ride, and at the end, I think I, I did it this time, I watched it too, I audibly said, oh, Winslow. Like, I feel so bad for him. He he cannot take, catch a break to the most ridiculous extreme, and it's sad. Yeah, it's. I think the, the scene which really got me is when he's at Sing Sing Prison, and it's like, oh, we're going to remove all your teeth for hygiene, and he's like, I don't want my teeth removed. And it's like, yep. oh. It's really sad. And, and um, William Finley is really just, he, he when he's the Phantom, he's like, like you still feel bad for him, but he is monstrous and he makes monstrous choices. And But when he's just Winslow, it's you just really feel bad for him. Yeah, and um, obviously when he has the, the Phantom, because he loses his, his voice box his accident Mm -hmm. so he's given an electronic voice box which gives him this really sort of uh like uh having a a track ring is that right it's that sort of a sort of a roboty sort of voice but i could just listen to him say cantata like just hours on end just having the car or something (laughs) have it looped over and over again yeah and i mean even if we got like completely old i'll just wait a week and it'd be brand new all over again yeah, it's 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 again with the with the voice box. It's kind of like this is comical and extreme, but also like really upsetting. <laughs> um, and I mean, he's he does a deal with he obviously does his deal with Swan, so he mm-hmm. comes back in and he's writing his cantata, and he's built in this actual studio, which is actually a real studio. It looks like a really futuristic set because it's like a like he's in a in like a dome or Mm -hmm. a a golf ball with like switches uh but it's actually a real studio uh dubbed tonto and you can actually it was actually used on several uh albums by the electronica duo uh tonto's expanding headband oh that's funny yeah and the features i saw that it was a real place and i was a little surprised because it was so stylized but um that's really interesting it's it's like so many aspects of this film that is very sort of 70s style you, it mm-hmm. has got that sense of period to the film yeah um like you look at obviously how the the paradise is is set out you like look at swan's uh, mansion with like the rotating uh, bed and it's like this film wouldn't work in like the 80s you can remake uh phantom of the paradise in the 90s it it works because of the time it's sort of set in mm-hmm. 
I mean, at the same time, we've obviously got sort of throwbacks to like fifties. Like, I mean, we've got when we see the juicy fruits at the beginning, they're like this greaser sort of uh, band. Um, and I mean, when they're doing that opening song at the beginning, which again, I don't know if you noticed it, but there's a guy like sort of seemingly like passing around what looks like a crack pipe while the yeah, yep. <laughs> I love the opening to this movie. It's so good. It really sets the tone <laughs> right into the song. It's so, again, this movie does a great job balancing the camp in the ridiculousness with like really serious stuff. Like that song is so campy and bouncy. And I think the next song you lead into is um, just Winslow and the piano. And yeah. it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. Cause um, I mean, it's obviously, it's interesting. You obviously mentioned, um, Winslow is obviously singing because it's not Winslow, the actor playing Winslow. Um, William Finley, who's actually singing, it's actually Paul Williams who does all the singing for him. Some of my favorite mu- movie music ever. Um, I, I just adore it. Um, and that that I, I've watched this with a lot of people, and that that scene at the piano when when he's initially you know performing, some people really check out during that. Um, it's. I think it's a single shot, or if if it's for some a portion of it, it is. Um, and it's just him and the and the, the piano and the music. And I, I could see it losing some people, but I think it's just really well done. I mean, obviously, when the music is a key part, it's sort of what drives Winslow on his sort of quest because mm-hmm. he's continuously screwed over by Swan. It's safe to say for like the most part, the whole pretty much the whole of the film. It's just like you wonder why he constantly makes these deals with one because he is just going to get screwed over in one way or another. Um, and like when you see the Juicy Fruits when he comes back as the Phantom, and they're now like this Beach Boys style tribute band. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you obviously said that you like like the film. I mean, is there any sort of asp- any parts of the music that you didn't like, or? Um, I mean, the first few times I watched it, there were. I, I I wasn't wild about um, Phoenix's um, song the first time I saw it, and there there were things that kind of dragged for me. But now I I'm just a hundred percent in on all of it the whole time. Yeah, um, I think for myself, anytime Beef tries and sings, it seems like a bit catawally. Oh, I love it! It's, it's so ridiculous. Um, I know it's ter- it's terrible, but yeah, I, mean, I don't know. This, again, that was another aspect that they didn't because the deal that. Winslow makes with Swan is that Phoenix is going to be the singer and he deems her too good, uh, which I didn't understand the reasoning behind. Uh, yeah. So instead he brings in this like flamboyant signal singer called Beef. Um, you know, I watched this with someone who hadn't seen it since they were a kid and they pointed that out too. Like they didn't really understand that. It's, um, it, like it, how that all connected. I mean, it, he... When they introduce him and he's like in the coffin, he's got like that screaming Lord such uh, yep. sort of aspect to him and that. But I mean, do you think that there are aspects of the film, as I mean, Beef is a prime example, that, that De Palma's like intentionally sort of camping it up, he's trying to make it as ridiculous as possible, or...? Oh, he'd have to be. Um, I, 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 he'd have to be. Beef is just over the top, and um, Garrett Graham, that, that, that is that dude, like... He's just every time he's on screen, he's he's chewing scenery. He's commanding attention, um, but everyone is acting around him like 
like, oh, this is just this guy. This is just this character. So it it works. It's not like the the film ever devolves into this, you know, camp fest. It's it's that character that in this universe acts like that. And I think that that I mean, it's probably like a commentary on musicians or glammy musicians or you know something like that. I'm sure there was a reason. I especially like the scene where you see Swan he's trying to find like a replacement for Phoenix and it's like he has this his, his desk and these lights keep coming up on these different acts doing it in different <gasps> sort of styles that's one of my favorite scenes and it's like he's having his own like um, American Idol sort of audition in his office it, it, it's really good and am I the only one that wants to hear the rest of all of those songs like really interesting hearing them um, performed different ways yeah, it's, um, I thought because I thought when they obviously introduced Beef and he just like wails away, I thought, oh, the, he's going to be like the joke one. He's going to be like one of these ones that they don't go with, especially because you already have the soul one. You've had like the country version, mm-hmm. uh, which would have been probably a completely different movie if they'd gone that route. Um, I mean, it, it, it's hard to take take his character so seriously. And I think I don't know this in a way, but um, Beef does end up on the sort of the wrong end of Winslow for like the most part of the film like he's attacked in the shower with uh, and has like a plunge upon his face yep <laughs> um, and then he's blown up uh, with a, a, a lightning um, sign yep a neon lightning bolt <laughs> which is again a really ridiculous scene yeah and um, apparently the, the, the crowd all seem to think it's part of the show Yep, he burst into flames, and they were like, "This is a great show." It's like, what? Like, what's he gonna follow up with in the next act? <laughs> it's like, he's like, set himself on fire in the first half. Can't wait to see what happens in the second half. But um, there is obviously that uh, before Beef's introducing that scene, you've got the three um, sort of like guys who like look like a Misfits tribute band, mm-hmm. who are yep. they're basically like disemboweling members of the audience. Yep. Like putting the limbs together in this or like to create the Frankenstein version of beef. I, I, I think the first time I saw this film, I was very bored by that scene. Um, now I really enjoy it. Um, it's There's a lot of fun things to look for in that. Like just this last time, I realized that um, Phoenix is actually in that scene. Like all the backup singers are are the women taking the body parts. I didn't, I, I didn't ne- realize she was there until you just mentioned Yeah, it. I never realized that. I've seen this movie an embarrassing amount of times, and I never realized that. And um, I finally, and I, I just got the Blu-ray, so I watched special, some of the special features, and I, they, they, De Palma actually name-checks Cabinet of Dr. Caligari for the bat setup, and I, I've always said it looks just like it. <laughs> I wonder if that's what he was going for. And then they said it, and I felt very vindicated. So I, I do really like that scene. It's um, I, and I, I and I will say, much like with Winslow at the piano, a lot of people check out during like the extended music scenes. Yeah. Um, I guess you're either on board with that or you're not. Yeah, I mean, certainly for myself, one of the the best performances, um, sort of scene is when. You see Winslow put the bomb, the probably the most fakest looking bomb I have to say in the whole film <laughs> history. You cannot make this and thing look faker if it had the words bomb on yep, the side. Yeah, bomb in big black letters. Yeah. Yeah, just like a like a cannonball sort of thing. Um, but the way De Palma shoots it, he actually does a split screen, and it 
I was trying to like look for like where one film would be like running slightly quicker than the other, but it is an absolutely flawless shot, the split screen. It's my favorite De Palma split screen. I know, big big statement, but it really is. It's really awesome. Yeah, and there is a there's certainly a sense of love of what he was doing with this film. I mean, you obviously yeah. look at De Palma's other films. I mean, obviously most notably, he did Scarface, he did Carrie. Um, to the later films, you've got things like uh, The Untouchables and Mission Impossible. Sort of like very sort of serious, very straight-faced films. And then you obviously go into this film, and it is just camp fun. Um, I mean, would you like to see De Palma go back and do some of this? I mean, understanding it was like an early film for him, so at this point in his career, he's still trying to get his sort of big break. Um, I do like when he embraces stuff like this a little bit more because, I mean, there are elements of... I'm not as campy as this or as, you know, flamboyant as this, but in something like Body Double, there is a lot of melodrama and a lot of over-the-top sweeping scenes in that. Um, I think he he definitely has it in him. Um, I think he channels it in different ways from film to film, though. Um, this was appropriate for that kind of craziness and i i don't know if he's done a project since that would have been um for something yeah. this over the top oh so good though <laughs> obviously winslow he is basically around murdering people um a la sort of phantom of the opera mm-hmm. um i mean do you feel these actions are sort of justified i mean they are obviously actions taken to the most extreme um, the fact he just goes and kills anyone involved with his music or anyone who sort of rivals him, as in the case of the Duty Fruits, he blows up with the bomb. Yes. <laughs> it's so hard to um, say. Bomb. I don't think anybody got hurt when, when he did that. I don't know. He, he puts it in the back of the, in the, back of the car because they're doing this like Beach Boy style number. And they reel this car which looks faker than like the, the Wiggles big red car. The big red car looks like. like plausible compared to this thing that they're just like wheeling on the stage yeah they're they're pushing it out there um i think he puts it in the trunk and i think everybody jumps off of it before it explodes yeah because apparently it blows up the band um despite being like a, a a big distance away from it it's i think do i think he's justified absolutely not but also I don't know. I I guess I could cop out and, and be like, well, he did most of the really bad stuff after he tried to kill himself and couldn't because he had made he had in, by proxy made a deal with the devil. So I mean, I think that would make anybody a little bit crazy. Yeah, I mean, Swan certainly doesn't help. Um, so oh, he's sure. such a bass. I mean, he he drugs him because um, he just keeps feeding him pills. Yep. Um, again, I d- it's so hard whenever you see drugs in a 70s movie. It's like, is this just a sign of the times or is this one being a bastard? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I think, yeah, he's pretty he's pretty bad about it, though. I mean, he tries to brick uh, Winslow into the studio. Yep. Um, which, again, I don't understand how he gets out. He suddenly has this like hu- superhuman strength from somewhere. Yeah, he not only busts through the bricks, he like busts through a metal door, too. Um and then, like, worst of all, he has to watch uh, Phoenix, who he's obsess- ob- absolutely obsessed with, shacking up with Swan. Yep. And Swan's, like, filming it as well, because apparently that's how he gets his rocks off. Yep. Um, I mean, 
in some way, I, I like the character of Swan, but he d- is such a bastard, isn't he? He's he's really terrible, and I don't know if I like the character of Swan or if I like Paul Williams and what he brings to it. Because there is, it, when when he is um, in the bathtub um, and and originally making his deal with the devil for eternal life, I really do kind of feel bad for him. He's but, like a he's a pathetic character. He's got a certainly high opinion of himself. He really does, but he's so pathetic, and and. <laughs> And I feel I feel, I know that he channels that in really negative ways, but there's something like you just want to be like, it's gonna be okay, guy. You don't have to do this. I mean, is there anything else that uh, you feel we should sort of discuss about this one? Um, I don't know. I could talk about this movie until the end of time. Um, okay. I mean, what are the other <laughs> things that you like about this? Uh, about I this like. One? I mean, what, what do I like? I mean, why did you keep returning to it? Obviously, I saw it the first time and absolutely adored it, but I've only seen it the once when I was sitting down to obviously write my review um, and obviously to write up the notes for discussing it on the show this evening. Um, I really, I mean, the music would probably be the first thing. I think it's visually just stunning. Um, it, it's composed really well. It's always really interesting to look at. Um the performances are great. I really love Paul Williams. I think William Finley is just heartbreaking in it. Um, Jessica Harper is amazing and goofy and boy, is she hateable at one point. Like everybody has these really extreme character arcs, but in the universe that the film creates, they're really believable. And I, I appreciate that. Um, uh, This is like this. It's like somebody made me a movie. They were like, here, have your movie. Um, It's, it's bleak and heartbreaking, but it's also goofy. I mean, I think the the song that closes the film, um, which is my favorite song, um, the hell of it is is it encompasses the whole movie because it's really upbeat and really like like jazzy. Like yeah, this song, this is how we're ending it, and it's such a fucking depressing song um, if you listen to the lyrics. And it's a real good mashup of of the two things that make this movie what it is. Like flashy and, and bright and brilliant and shiny but really depressing and for myself when I was obviously watching it um, trying to think of other films to sort of if you like like this film I mean what, what else to sort of watch uh, for myself obviously Rocky Horror Picture Show would be at the top of that mm-hmm. list um, another film I wanted to compare it to would be Streets of Fire yeah Streets of Fire is... Uh, which is worth seeing, just to see Rick Moranis play, like, a, a bastard character. Because he's, uh, he's normally just plays, like, these Weasley sort of, uh, sort of, like, downtrodden sort of characters. But in that one, he his, like, real has some balls and, like, tells... He's going around telling people what how it's going to be done and how he wants things to be done. Um, Streets of Fire, I would say the soundtrack to that I would listen to more than Phantom of the Paradise. I know, sacrilege, but... <laughs> um, Nothing wrong with that. The, the opening song, especially from Streets of Fire, just, you know, if I need to get inspired to, like, do something. Like, if you, like, going to the gym or something, it's quite good. <laughs> I'll have to remember that. I do need that inspiration quite often. Oh, no, just... Uh, <laughs> it, it's hard not to feel, like, energized to, like, just want to go and do a Rocky montage somewhere to the uh, opening song of Streets of Fire. <laughs> As we were discussing on uh, the future edition of uh, this podcast, when, it, when uh, we do obviously cover that film. Um, I mean, for myself, obviously I've said that 
Rocky Horror is a good comparison. I mean, I would actually put this as a better sequel to Rocky Horror than Rocky Horror's actual uh, sequel shock treatment, uh, which yeah, interestingly Jessica I, Harper was in. I love Jessica Harper. I am not a fan of shock treatment, so it doesn't take much for me to pick something before that. Yeah, it's it, a lot of people don't know it exists. Um, and those that do not exist don't really want to watch it again. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those rare films where even Richard O'Brien ain't going to save it. Yeah, I, I I should revisit it. But now you're saying that, and I, I set thinking that I shouldn't revisit it. <laughs> I mean, um, if you... I mean, do you have anything that you would sort of, like, pair it with yourself? Um... It, that was that's really tough because nothing really evokes these similar feelings. I would say if you liked it and liked the way it looked and you want to pair it with something for that reason, go with go with Suspiria and look at pretty colors and look at Jessica Harper again. Um, that's I could see you doing these those two in one night or if you're really feeling De Palma. For me, the De Palma that I would pair this with is Sisters, but that's probably because it's like my second favorite diploma um william finley's in that also i mean i i don't like musicals not as a rule it just kind of happens that way so this is this is a rarity for me to have responded this way to a musical i mean are you i mean would you class yourself as a fan of diploma's work on a whole or yeah absolutely i mean he's 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 a big one for me really i mean for myself he's like one of those directors i know of his work um, but I wouldn't if I was like listening to my favourite directors I mean I wouldn't put De Palma on that list um, I mean for a start I think Scarface is over long I've never seen it it's one of my only De Palmas that I've never seen really? Uh, I yeah, would I, that would have been the one most people would have seen So it, I think it is but it's not what it's not the first thing I saw and I have it, again as going back to subject matter there's just some things that I don't think I would respond to and I don't think I would respond to the subject matter of Scarface. I'm not a huge fan of The Untouchables, and that's a huge one for him. People yeah. love that movie. I mean, The Untouchables, um, it borrows that key scene with the baby carts from uh, Battleship Potonkin. Oh, so that's not even a... No, 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 no. I mean, um, <laughs> Battleship Potonkin, there's uh, the scene where you have the baby cart going down the steps, and they've got this wonderful cut sequence where it seems like the stone lions are actually standing up in, like, shock of... Uh, the scene uh, that's obviously erupting around them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if you've not seen Batship Tonkin, definitely check that out. Oh, all right, well, I'll have to add that to the ever-growing list. So, I mean, with you, obviously, your watch power, I mean, do you find that, obviously, being so involved within the sort of genre community that you find it's just constantly being added to? Oh, it's un- it's unending. Yeah, there's always something. I mean, and, and the output, like, the new output has actually been interesting enough and there's been such high points lately that there's as much new stuff that on my list is like old stuff that I'm still trying to catch up with. So it's a constant battle. I mean, again, with obviously with new releases, I do, I struggle to get excited about new horror films. Like, I mean, I haven't seen Oculus because I just instantly assume it's going to be awful. It's going to be like another paranormal activity. It's going to be um, like another so, so it's going to have all the sort of cliches that modern horror falls to falls sort of foul of, um, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what m- makes the mumble gore um, sort of genre so interesting. Obviously, we've got films like 
uh, you're next. We've obviously got The Guest. Um, moving away from just the one director, we've also got films like Chil- Cheap Frills, mm-hmm. um, which again goes to some rather uncomfortable places. And it's surprising, obviously, that this is a genre which has obviously come out of the mumble core uh, sort of movement. But, I mean, I mean, would you say that sort of like modern horror, it's sort of like it's real sort of saviors are still with big budget productions? Or would you say it's more sort of the independent scene, which is sort of like the saving point for the genre? Um, I think the fact that there is so much quality um, independent stuff coming out is, is amazing. Um, but I think there are some merits to the bigger budget stuff. I mean... I think Oculus is a fantastic movie. Um, I actually thought Sinister was really great as well. I mean, it is it adheres to more cliches, um, you could say, but there's enough interesting, redeeming stuff in it and some really solid performances. Um, and, like, I, I think, not the first two, but I think there's some really good stuff in the Paranormal Activity franchise. Um, I think they get into some interesting things. They do a lot of interesting stuff with characters. Uh, I might be very forgiving of the genre as a whole. I'm not. I'm really, really not. I, I'm a tough. I'm real tough on the horror genre. But there is. A, I think there's so much good stuff coming out. You just have to kind of find what works for you. Um, because I can see. I can see why something like Paranormal Activity franchise wouldn't work for somebody. Just like Saw didn't work for a lot of people. Myself included, um, but but I think there's some really interesting things there, and um, like I, I I think there was a point where a hor- like where a horror movie would come out in the theaters, like something like Dead Silence. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. Um, where I went like, ugh, why do they keep doing this? But now I feel a little bit more hopeful when I see something like that's actually hitting the theaters that seems to be like a horror film. I'm I'm like, okay, this is something I might like. Yeah, it's, so. it's the problem with Dead Silence is that when they promote it over here, you got James Wan obviously going on and saying like, "Oh, this is like a real tribute to all the British horror movies I grew up in." And you're thinking, "Yeah, great, thanks." That just made me want to make the most obscene noise. That's such ridiculous garbage. That movie is so terrible. Nothing inspired that movie except him wanting to cash a paycheck. Yeah, I think if you're gonna watch a um, a puppet movie, watch Magic instead with Anthony Hopkins. It, it's actually scary. <laughs> Um, Dead Silence is just a joke. I don't know why that popped into my head, but there was a point in time where anything that that was like a, a like a big release that was in the horror genre was almost guaranteed to be terrible. Because I think it's because there was such a push towards making things PG thirteen, mm. like during like when the Prom Night remake came out, and um, it was about getting teenagers in the theater. I hope we're moving away from that. I see. For me, myself, I feel that the horror genre on a whole is becoming oversaturated. Um, when I go to like like the supermarket and I see like the DTV like releases, and you got things like oh, strippers versus werewolves, strippers versus zombies, Cockney versus zombies. Yeah. And it's like these cliche titles, and you've got like the Asylum who now just seem to just go with like any other sort of dreck and you've got a lot of their imitators I mean you've got things like what avalanche sharks which are caught over the Christmas break and you watch these films and they're just there's no sort of love for the genre and again this is why obviously going back to our first one the evening with the uh, Soskia sisters why I feel bad bashing 
like that film because these are the sort of directors <laughs> I want to be pushing. I want to be pushing people like Lucky McKee. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, back in sort of the 90s, we had a sort of film, um, the film, the film historian, um, that was actually like put together his sort of like splat pack, and it had people like Greg McLean who did Wolf, uh, Wolf Creek, Eli Roth, uh, you had James Wan, and um, and those sort of characters. I mean, is there any? If you were to put together your sort of splat pack now, like the horror directors to watch, who would you include on your list? Oh, geez, I'm not sure. I, I feel like so many people are, are still in their infancy, like getting their feet wet. Um, I, I don't, I can't think of her name off the top of my head, but the woman that directed um, The Babadook is people are clamoring over her. Like, I want to see more of what she's going to do. Um, Mike, his name's Mike something, I can't think. Mike Flanagan, maybe, who did Oculus. He did um, a movie called Absentia as well, and I was I thought that was interesting, and Oculus I loved, so I'd love to see what he continues to do. Like I, I feel like there are a lot of people coming in and, and making waves in a really good way. Um, I think because you mentioned those those people's names that you mentioned, and I, I don't really I don't really like any of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, Eli Roth, so, I think, is the probably the biggest pretender to oh my gosh. the horror front. I mean, the, when he first like appeared and he had cabin fever, uh, which no, he didn't have cabin fever. He gave us cabin fever, should I say. Uh, <laughs> and people were like, oh, he's coming in. He's going to be like Tarantino. He's going to like do what Tarantino is doing for like crime cinema. He's mm-hmm. going to do for horror cinema. And you saw like the extras and he's like reeling off things like Cannibal Holocaust. He's like referencing Argento. And I was like, this is this is the guy we need to be watching, and now he's just sort of like so caught up in his own bloody hype from Hostel, which yeah, yeah. let's not forget set the horror f- franchise back like several decades just by being followed by this stream of torture porn. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, again, I'm I'm actually happy that we're just moving away from that. Like I I was never a fan of that of yeah. that turn, so I'm kind of glad that it's not what's hot right now. It's, I mean, I just, there are directors, as we said, I mean, like Lucky McKay, who did May um, and The Woods, and more recently, The Woman, which is probably an extremely, like, visceral, uh, but gripping sort of horror film. I mean, these are the sort of guys we need to be. I mean, obviously, like, looking like Alexandra AJ, who did Switchblade Romance or High Tension, I think it was released in the States as. Um, These are sort of, like, people I would like to see. See, see doing but for some reason they just never seem to get the breaks we're always like oh have another paranormal romance can't have enough of those yeah paranormal, it, uh, activity show there not I paranormal mean, they, romance that's something different that's a whole I different like. argument <laughs> um, it, yeah I, I want to see these because I, I do think there is a certain resurgence or there's more interesting things I mean there's obviously they're still going to be making you know, ninjas versus zombies and yeah. zombie strippers and stuff like because that's just for some reason people look at that. But there's other more interesting stuff that seems to be coming out more frequently rather than two or three a year. You can get like six or seven. They might not all be amazing, but they're at least interesting doing something different or trying to tell you a creepy story. Yeah. Which I'm happy about. Yeah. I think once we start to move away from zombies and vampires, it can only be better. I tend to agree. Um, vampires are just... I don't like vampires to begin with. I think it's... 
a tired genre and one that the paranormal romance sort of uh, has only sort of driven further underground. Zombies, again, just due to the sheer amount of DTV releases because zombie movies that are cheap to make. Um, again, they've just sort of removed any fear. I would rather see like a werewolf movie, but done well. Something like The Howling or yeah. American Werewolf in London, that sort of thing. Not uh, like <laughs> um, American Werewolf in Paris or something. <laughs> yes, more in London, less in Paris. I can agree with that. Um, I was just trying to think of another ever no, recent. Because um, you obviously had Wes Craven's um, werewolf movie, which is so terrible. Cool. That's the, the worst movie ever. Not really. There's a lot worse, but it's not good. Um, I mean, that's the sort of last. I think, really, I think the last good werewolf movie, Ginger Snaps, I think, would probably be the last one. Yeah, they're they're not something I actively seek out um, because they're so often not what I'm looking for. But yeah, Ginger Snaps, Dog Soldiers is great, obviously. Um, but yeah, Alexander Aja, I'm probably saying that wrong. Yeah. Who did High Tension? Um, he directed Horns, the Joe Hill adaptation with um, Daniel Radcliffe. That I I've not seen watched. it yet. Um, it's sitting here waiting for me to look at it and I haven't watched it yet but I'm glad that he's still working in some capacity I don't know how good this movie is mm. but I really like him um, I really liked Hills Have Eyes that was a great remake um, and I, I really liked P2 I think I'm the only person that liked P2 <laughs> and he wrote that I think yeah he wrote that I really liked what he did with Piranha uh, I did too I don't know if you're being sarcastic no no I love Piranha it's just it just sort of does what you need a piranha movie to do, but it keeps it on the same the sort of like uh, sensible level. Unlike um, Piranha Free Double D, which was just like completely just just how it could have been if he had not like reeled it back how he did. Yeah. Um, just the carnage of the finale of Piranha is just is worth renting it alone. There are other aspects that the 3D does sell, uh, but I'll let you sort of figure that out for yourself yeah i think i saw it in the theater i really enjoyed it yeah did you um i'm guessing that one particular scene was popular with the male audience or women who yeah, like to watch that thing it was it was really they knew what they were doing and it was really um it worked it was really funny and talk about campy um but it, it was very effective and saw it in 3d and it was great mm. so um Again, thank you, uh, Christine, for obviously coming on and uh, not only discussing the films, but uh, giving us plenty of food for thought about the uh, genre films on on a whole. Um, it's been great having you on. Obviously, if people want to uh, read your book, whereabouts is uh, the best place to get it? Is it just Amazon at the minute? Right now, it's just Amazon. You can either um, search the title of the book, which is Wake Up Maggie, or my name, which is Christine Makepeace, just the way it sounds. Um, it, it should come up right away. <laughs> Okay. I mean, if obviously people want to uh, follow more of your work and obviously see what uh, you're doing, is there any particular best places to follow you? Um, I'm currently working on a website because I've been told that I need to have one, but I am on um, Twitter. It's para, P-A-R-A, X-T-E-N-E, X-T-I-N-E. Um, and I'm there and I'm active and I am very bored at work, so you should bother me. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um Again, thank you, Christine, for coming on and uh, giving us another entertaining show this uh, this this evening. Um, but again, this is time to unfortunately wrap up another edition of the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange Showcase. Um, so this is Edward Jones signing out and remind you, as always, to keep it strange. <laughs>